Good afternoon, and welcome to this first ever Radio Boise News Experience broadcast. I'm Brian Allred, and Daniel Falcons is here with me in the studio. The stories you are about to hear are the product of a volunteer citizen reporter team that we call the News Experience. These volunteer journalists came together in March to study radio journalism, and today we'll bring you the fruits of their labor. But first, Congress held two important votes last week, and Idaho's small delegation split its votes on both issues. What happened with the cyber intelligence sharing vote, Daniel? CISPA, or the Cyber Intelligence Sharing and Protection Act, is the latest in a string of congressional attempts to regulate internet communications. The bill easily passed the House 248 to 168 in a surprise vote last week. Idaho Representative Mike Simpson voted no on the bill, while Congressman Raul Labrador voted for approval. Both are Republicans. CISPA raises red flags for privacy experts concerned that government snooping on internet communications could extend beyond national security threats. CISPA sponsors Dutch Ruppersberger, a Democrat from Maryland, and Mike Rogers, a Michigan Republican, believe the bill is urgently needed to protect the United States from cyber attacks from criminal gangs as well as state-sponsored terrorists. Facebook supports the bill, along with big telecom companies, and Google and Twitter have not taken a position, possibly because the language of the bill protects such businesses from privacy suits when they share customers' personal information with the government. Lee Bedon of TechDirt notes that the language of the bill allows the government to, quote, search information the government collects under CISPA for purposes of investigating American citizens with complete immunity from all privacy protections as long as they can claim someone committed a cybersecurity crime. Also last week, Idaho Senator Mike Crapo co-sponsored the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act with Vermont Democrat Patrick Leahy. Crapo detailed the need for the law, which gives police and courts more tools to punish domestic violence offenders. Last year in my state, 22 people were killed by a domestic partner. Approximately one in three adolescent girls in the United States is a victim of physical, emotional, or verbal abuse from a dating partner. Nearly one in ten high school students nationwide were hit, slapped, or physically hurt on purpose by their boyfriend or girlfriend. Some Republicans oppose new measures in VAWA that protect gays and lesbians, give more power to tribal police, and provide more visas to protect undocumented immigrants who are victims of domestic violence. But Crapo urged the Senate to see the big picture. But when we are done, and the debate is over, and the voting on the amendments is concluded, I urge all my colleagues to join me in supporting the reauthorization of this critical program. The bill did pass the Senate, but Idaho Senator Jim Risch voted against reauthorizing VAWA. Opposition to the Senate version of the bill is mounting in the House. So, Brian, are you going to vote in the primary election on Tuesday, May 15th? Is that the election where you have to register your party affiliation? That's the one. Last year, a law went into effect that restricts Idahoans to only voting in the primary election of the political party for which they are registered unless the party notifies the Secretary of State that it will allow additional voters. So I have to register as a Republican in order to, in- to vote on the Republican primary ballot? Yes, exactly. But if you're registered as a Republican, you could vote in the Republican primary or the Democratic primary, because the Democrats are allowing anyone to vote in their primary, even those not affili- affiliated with any party. So if I vote Republican on the Re- On the Republican ballot, I have to register as a Republican, and if I want to vote on the Democratic ballot, I can be registered with any party or even be unaffiliated? You got it. So then what was the point of this election again? 
Well, it's a primary election, or sometimes called a party primary, because it's how the parties decide who their nominees will be in the general election in November. The Idaho Secretary of State's website, IdahoVotes.gov, has all the information on who is running and where the polls are. The International Criminal Court in The Hague has convicted former Liberian President Charles Taylor of war crimes in arming and supporting a brutal rebel movement in neighboring Sierra Leone in the 1990s. John Williams, a member of the Liberian community here in Boise, fled Liberia during the first civil war there, before Taylor came to power, but he's watched this rare war crimes trial with interest. Well, actually, um, when he was president, I was uh, out of the country. I fled into uh, to Ghana, and um, people who were back there, and uh, you know, who were in communication with them, and uh, to say it was like, almost the same. It was like he's just ruling them with iron hands, you know. It's what he says, that's what goes on, you know, and things like that. So in Sierra Leone, uh, he supported the uh, the rebel group there. He sent soldiers, he sent money in there. Uh, I think he stole their uh, diamonds and things from the mine, you know. They were paying back in diamonds and he was giving them soldiers to fight for them. And uh, the people was pretty mad about it because, I mean, I mean, they massacre people bad in, in Sierra Leone, and, you know, the people wanted him, too, to go to judgment because, you I mean, I mean, I, I can't really tell how much they kill, you know. They kill a lot of people, and it was pretty bad. Even, even Liberia, they kill a lot of people, too, but I tell you what, Sierra Leone was bad. In Sierra Leone, they brought something from that country, what they call long sleeve and short sleeve. They cut your hand over here, short sleeve, they cut this whole arm off. That's short sleeve. They cut this one right here, they call it long sleeve. So they were cut, they were just, I mean, disfiguring people. You know, it was bad, it was pretty bad. Then they gave you long trousers and gave you short trousers. They cut one of the foot up the same way, they cut this one off and they called it short trousers. It was pretty bad, they came with bad stuff. So, you know, that was the kind of effect that we have from Sierra Leone because Taylor sent people to fight them, so they sent people back to fight. And I tell you what, they did kill people bad, you know. Yeah, I think uh, for me, I think he deserved it, and um, I don't know. For me, I think just wasting so much time to uh, you know sentence him because he be, he should be sentenced a long time ago. I don't know. They know that everything he did was wrong, so I don't see why they should keep him so long and you know try him, try him, try him. They know already. There's so many things, so many bad things he did, and you know, I just don't get why he stays sitting down in prison. Should be sentenced for I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do with him for life or to kill him or whatever, you know, but he should be sentenced. Taylor could be sentenced as early as this month. We heard from Boise resident John Williams, originally from Liberia. Idaho recently caught up with 49 other states, as well as Puerto Rico and American Samoa. The Gem State now has its own Women's Business Center. The new center offers resources and counseling to women entrepreneurs from startup through their second year of business. It's funded in part by the U.S. Small Business Administration and is locally administered by Mountain States Group and META, which stands for Micro Enterprise Training and Assistance. In January, the Women's Business Center opened with a standing room only crowd in the Mountain States Building on the corner of 16th and Jefferson Streets in Boise. Any woman who owns a business can seek help from the center. Radio Boise reporters Brian Rumbaugh and Nancy Buffington, with the help of their news experience team, report. Yvonne Anderson-Thomas owns Brown Sugar Soul Food. She's known at festivals as the Turkey Leg Lady. We spoke with her at her food truck on the corner of Chinden and Maple Grove. 
I picked soul food because nobody else in Boise has soul food. So I wanted to be different and and do something that Boise doesn't have. Fill a fill a unique market, you know. I do a lot of weddings and I do a lot of festivals and corporate events, corporate lunches, stuff like that. What do you think of the new Women's Business Center? I think it's going to be very instrumental and I can't wait to get over there, you know, when I get a day off. I'm going to make that one of my first priorities is set up an appointment to go over there and see, you know, what I can do and how I can be connected to them. I know there's usually not a lot of resources for women. So now that this center is there, I think it's going to be very instrumental in helping the women, you know, have some place to go for referrals and for resources and for counseling, whatever we need. Sheila Spangler is the manager of Idaho's new Women's Business Center. Brian and I sat down with her recently. Since we've announced, uh, we've just been inundated with calls from women saying, I want to start a business, or I've thought about starting a business, or I'm in business and I'm having some difficulty. I'd love to come down and see if you can help me. What services do you offer? Well, we offer one-on-one business counseling, and we sit down and we talk with them about whatever their issue in business is. I mean, it can range anything from marketing, how do I market my services, to um, I don't know if I'm making a profit, and how do I how do I figure that out? And we do what's called back-of-the-napkin financial analysis, where in about an hour or less, we can take someone through where they are now and show them what kind of things they need to think about for their business. The other thing we're in the planning stages of doing is offer training courses on different financial aspects. There's the financial area, operations, marketing, and sales. And ideally, we want to have those launched, or at least a couple of them launched in April. Who can use your services? Anyone can use our services, but we're doing outreach to the socially and economically disadvantaged. So we are going to specifically do outreach to those groups to make sure that they know we're here and we're here to help. But certainly anyone can call and come in and we don't turn anyone away. Although new to Idaho, the concept of women helping women in business has been around quite a while, Spangler says. The Women's Business Center is actually not a new concept. It started in 1988 when the first uh, President George Bush enacted the law for the uh, Office of Women's Business Ownership through the Small Business Administration. So that's when it started, and there are actually 110 women's business centers around the country, and we're just the most recent one. The need for women's business centers has increased as more and more women have taken on the challenge and sought the rewards of business ownership. There are 7.8 million women-owned businesses in the country. And so to give you an idea of what this means, there are 25 million businesses in the entire United States. So women own roughly a third of those businesses. Census Bureau statistics for 2007 show that in Idaho, women own 23.5% of businesses, or slightly less than a quarter of total businesses in the state. The rate of growth in women-owned businesses is two to one compared to male-owned businesses. So the growth rate is picking up. I mean, we have a ways to go to get to the mass, you know, as far as being 50% of of the total businesses owned. But women are starting more businesses more rapidly. Idaho did have a women's business center for a brief period in the 1990s, but it closed due to funding issues. This time, community support appears greater there's a group of women bankers in the area that strongly wanted it to happen. So they had places to send their clients who were asking for, well, isn't there a place that we can go and talk to a woman about our business?
With this wide base of support, the center developed a mentoring program. The idea is we'd have a, a woman business owner or an entrepreneur that is in business less than two years, and we would pair them up with someone that's been in business for you know five to ten years or longer. Think about big brothers, big sisters, it's you know one business owner mentoring another. There's a saying that goes, it's the loneliest job in the world because a lot of times your family doesn't understand, your friends don't understand unless they're in business. It doesn't stop at five. It continues on. I mean, even when you're sleeping, you're still thinking about it. So that is going to be a big help to the, the startup business owners. Spangler is confident her staff will have answers for women seeking help. All of us have been in business, the three of us that are on staff. I was a banker, so I'm pretty familiar with the, the lending side and the numbers, as well as, as our full-time business development specialist, Karen Hungerford. She um, is very good with uh, diving down to the bottom line and, and helping you figure out what you need to do there. And then Stacy Dagris, who's our marketing and uh, communications person, has a lot of experience in you know social media and the other channels of marketing. The center also works closely with a green business specialist, as well as translators for clients who don't speak English. Spangler notes that the center welcomes male clients, too. It's interesting, and over the country they do have that as well. I mean, sometimes, from what we've been told, certain men have said, you know, sometimes you don't want to share your ideas with another man. You would rather tell it to a woman. The center's clients can also apply for business loans from Microenterprise Training and Assistance, or META for short. The meta loans are micro loans, and they range from five hundred dollars to fifteen thousand dollars. And meta is a program that's been around for approximately ten years. They started out with a loan fund for refugees, and then in the recent years, they've added three more funds. There's a fund for green entrepreneurs. There's one for women entrepreneurs, and then there's a fund for anyone. One of the center's green entrepreneurs is Carrie Peterman. She owns Soul Bakery, scheduled to open in May at 3910 West Hill Road in Northwest Boise. Carrie has received help from Meta in the past and is just starting to work with the Women's Business Center. Tell us about your bakery. We are a locally sourced, whole grain, green business. Our five-year plan is to go solar. All the appliances in the shop are going to be electric so that we can make the conversion to solar once uh, we're at that point in the business. Um, solar hot water is definitely on the table as well. We won't be totally off the grid. That's almost impossible, but we'll at least be able to you know, pay back into the system, so to speak, and, and be able to run the meter back a little bit and do our part to help save the planet. Peterman says Meta's help made starting her business easier. It would have just been a lot more legwork on my part and just made it a lot easier for me so that I could concentrate on the other areas that I needed to concentrate on, like finding the space and remodeling and, and doing the construction and that sort of thing. Working with the new Women's Business Center is in Peterman's future plans. Oh, I think it's really exciting. I think our, our valley is definitely lacking in, in these kinds of resources. So it's something that we definitely need and is going to be well used, I'm sure. Marketing is going to be the, the, the big area that I'm going to need some help with. Stacy and I have talked a little bit about what we want to do for our grand opening and our ribbon cutting and who we can get here and, and how we can get them there and, and uh, really just making it a, a, a big occasion for the, the Collister neighborhood and the North End and really drumming up some excitement. While the Women's Business Center is still in the early stages of establishing connections with area business owners like Anderson Thomas and Peterman, Sheila Spangler notes that they have plans to reach beyond the Treasure Valley. 
that is something that we definitely are working on because we're covering five counties, Ada, Canyon, Jim, Elmore, and Payette. We are actually looking for folks in those other counties to help us do that outreach. So if there's anyone listening that's interested in volunteering or perhaps uh, working with us to do some outreach in those counties to make sure that the folks there know we're here. Spangler sees the center's first busy months as a sign that it is here to stay. I think with the interest in the market, we, we have a strong chance of of getting what we need and, and making sure that this continues because I, I think it's been like a, a desert in the area as far as, you know, filling a need here. You can contact the Women's Business Center at 208-336-6722. That report was produced by Nancy Buffington and Brian Rumbaugh with the help from Diane Ronier. Daniel Falcons, Wendy Fox, Meredith St. Clair as part of Radio Boise's first news experience. Next, we turn to the housing crisis. Going through a short sale can be a viable alternative to foreclosure, but as one local family's story illustrates, the process of dealing with big banks, mortgage insurance companies, government programs, and third-party investors can turn an answer to your prayers into a nightmare. Jack Van Valkenburg reports. Eight-year-old Jessica Ross is a bright little girl who started playing piano at age three. Jessica also has mitochondrial myopathy, a disease that interferes with muscular functioning and makes it difficult to retain energy. A few years ago, the disease began to take a financial toll on the family, according to Jessica's dad, Wayne Ross. But for her uh, specific kind of disease, there's no area specialist. Closest one is in Seattle, so that's about $1,000 every six months kind of a thing, let alone your medications, which are not, uh, in the beginning, are not prescribed, so those are over the counter. So that's all going out, too, plus your doctor's visits and this and that. Um, she uh, can easily uh, get a fever uh, close to 105, and she'll be in the hospital for three days. The Rosses moved to the Treasure Valley from California in 2006 and purchased a 2,100-square-foot home in Meridian. They paid about $260,000, not an unreasonable price at the time. Once settled, Wayne became a teacher at Nampa High School, and his wife, Mickey, a nurse, started teaching at a local health clinic. With rising health care costs and Wayne's pursuit of his master's degree in teaching at Boise State, it became increasingly difficult for the Rosses to pay their mortgage every month. That, uh, coupled with everything else that was happening in our economy, um, as we started to move into, you know, 2008-ish, 2009, everything started to shift. Um, you know, we started to see that we weren't going to be able to keep the house. We saw our bank account going down and down. I was uh, working. I got my master's at BSU. Um, I was doing what we always thought we were supposed to do, <laughs> is get a higher degree and be rewarded, and that wasn't happening. Wayne decided to drop his teaching job and focus on Jessica's education and health. The Rosses also tried to secure a loan modification through the Federal Home Affordable Modification Program, or HAMP. Terry Pickens, an attorney who specializes in real estate law in Boise, elaborates. HAMP is a federally mandated program that the banks have to comply with certain terms and terms and conditions of the refinance process if the homeowner qualifies. So again, you still go through that three to six month qualification period at which you're at risk of your home being either put into foreclosure or becoming very far behind. After 10 and a half months of this process, the Rosses decided not to go through the HAMP program and pursue a HAFA short sale. Since you're qualified for HAMP, you automatically qualify for HAFA, which is the Home Affordable Foreclosure Alternative. 
which the government created uh, to get people uh, who have a lot of medical bills, uh, hardships, these different things going on. It, it's made for those people. To prepare a half a short sale with Bank of America, the Ross family discovered there were a number of hurdles to jump through. First, Bank of America demanded an extra $1,500 cash. This demand was declined by the Rosses just as the short sale was about to close in July of 2011. At the last moment, the bank suddenly realized the short sale was under the HAFA program and declined the Rosses on a procedural technicality. Not only did she decline it, but she did what they call a hard decline, so nobody could get access to the file. Yeah, instead of just saying, okay, well then let's, let's restructure, let's do something else. Nope, start over. One of the most common difficulties with applying for a HAFA short sale is the fixed minimum income requirement. The Ross family exceeded the minimum, despite their mounting health insurance costs. Half of it I haven't seen, when I say one in a hundred, I mean, I'm trying to think of one that was that qualified and made it through half a, um, that didn't just ultimately go through a normal short sale process and then um, negotiating any deficiency balances or waiving. The Rosses moved into a 1,200 square foot apartment in Boise while still maintaining the Meridian home. We were not happy, to say the least. Um, but we knew that we had to go forward. You know, um, we didn't want the implications of just leaving the house, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, we didn't want to abandon it, per se. Um, but during that time, when they said, okay, basically we're ready to go, da-da-da-da-da, so by the 14th, we were packing up our house in Meridian and getting ready to move here. The family reapplied for half a short sale program on October 31, 2011. The new contract from Bank of America asked them to guarantee no lawsuits, set a sale price of $160,000, $41,000 less than what they owed, plus a few other fees. Numerous buyers offered to pay at least $160,000, but the bank, Freddie Mac, the bank's investor, and the Loan Resolution Corporation continuously blamed each other for the delay in closing the deal. When you ask LRC, they say it's Freddie Mac. When you ask Freddie Mac, if you can get a Freddie Mac person, they say it's B of A. When you ask B of A, they say it's LRC. The Rosses could have taken the half a short sale to court, before they decided to sign it. But after months of trying to understand the forces at play and stacks of paperwork, they compromised with a standard short sale. Pickens noted that a fourth party, besides Bank of America, Freddie Mac, and LRC, that often delays the short sale process is the bank's mortgage insurance company. Now you ask why would an insurance company do that? Well, because they insure every loan. And you figure you and I that haven't been through the foreclosure short sale process our, you know, the insurance money that has been paid on our loans, the insurance companies gained that as a profit. You know, only one in ten houses are in foreclosure or short sale, and so the other nine have kind of picked up that tab. The Ross's case is a classic example of how difficult it can be to complete a loan modification when circumstances change. Their case illustrates that there is no guarantee that federal programs such as HAMP or HAFA will actually help any individual owner regardless of need. So basically, across the whole, this whole scenario across the country has raised insurance rates on mortgages, which is why banks don't want to lend as much money because they're paying more, we're paying more as consumers when we purchase homes, but at the end of the day, um, I personally don't feel sorry for the mortgage insurance companies, they're still making a profit. The banks are still making ridiculous profits, um, bigger profits now than they were making five years ago when everything crashed. Bank of America did not provide a response for this story, despite several attempts to reach them.
Despite their lengthy ordeal, the Rosses demonstrated that there is still hope with patients. The family was recently approved for a standard short sale and the home was sold. The first choice always is the short sale and, and by far the better choice of, of what you can do in that situation and find a short sale specialist realtor, someone who can, who knows the process, knows the quagmire, knows the language that you need to speak with the uh, bankers. There's no way around any of this kind of stuff that makes sense and we're not even trying to get ahead. We're just trying to break free. And we know our credit's destroyed, and it's gonna be a couple of years before. I'm never buying a house unless I've got all the funds. That was Jack Van Valkenburg reporting. Scott McIntosh conducted the interviews for that story with research and writing assistance from Nicholas Pace and audio production by Brian Rumbaugh. Our next story comes to us from Thin Air Community Radio in Spokane. Gavin Dahl reports on the latest comments from Judge Redden, who presided over the long-running Endangered Species Act lawsuit on Northwest salmon recovery. Conservation groups applauded. Some industry groups expressed outrage. In his first interview since retiring, federal judge James Redden told a reporter from public television that the four dams on the lower Snake River should be breached for the sake of salmon recovery. I think we need to take those dams down. We're talking basically down right up the Snake River. But uh, in trying to take out a dam is not, is not very difficult. It's a lot easier than it is putting them up. But you don't just take the whole thing down. You just, just let the water go around it. You just dig out the ditch and let it go around. Thirteen species of salmon in the Columbia and Snake River system were first listed in the Endangered Species Act in the early 1990s. The federal government was then required to put together a plan to restore them. It turned into the Pacific Northwest's biggest court fight over fish. U.S. District Judge James Redden poured over thousands of pages of research and listened to hundreds of hours of testimony before retiring from the salmon case late last year at the age of 82. Speaking to a reporter for Idaho Public Television, Judge Redden said the Ice Harbor, Lower Monumental, Little Goose, and Lower Granite dams along the Lower Snake River should come down. As unprecedented as it may sound, the breaching of hydroelectric dams in the region is already underway. The Elwha River Dam in western Washington was a source of water power and controversy for over a century, but now it's history. Contractors channeled the river 10 times in order to demolish the dam in the dry before setting the river back in its natural place. Work was halted during fish runs, staying true to the environmental mission of the demolition. The largest dam removal in U.S. history requires the restoration of the local ecosystem by a unique partnership between government agencies and tribes. The other dam removal project begun last year was the breaching of the Condit Dam on the White Salmon River near the Columbia River Gorge. Pat Ford, executive director of the Save Our Wild Salmon Coalition, says conservation groups were pleased to hear Judge Redden's conclusion after so many years. And Judge Redden has done more for Idaho salmon and steelhead than anyone uh, in the last 20 years. He's a real hero to those of us who care about salmon. And uh, so we're pleased with his statement, and uh, we think it indicates that he's paid very close attention to the science of this issue. Redden's oversight of the process has included three rejected operations plans for salmon recovery and continued production of hydropower along the Columbia and Snake Rivers over the past 10 years. 
The commercial and sport fishing industries have been key partners of conservationists throughout the process, but Congressman Doc Hastings from Washington and other industries are unhappy with Judge Redden's latest statement and have begun using rhetoric about his so-called radical agenda. The Lewiston Tribune reported that Hastings now claims he has suspected Judge Redden of activist bias for years. Pat Ford from Save Our Wild Salmon says these are exaggerations and that Judge Redden is a conservative judge. You can tell that he pays very close attention to the law, to the limits of the law. Uh, He has rarely been overturned on appeal on any case, and he's never been overturned on appeal on his salmon cases, uh, even though there have been attempts to do so. Uh, He also paid very close attention to the details here. He paid a lot of attention to the science uh, over the 10 years he was on the case. He gave the federal government repeated uh, opportunities to fix their plan without trying to dictate what they should do to do so. He grew increasingly impatient with their refusal to modify their plan to to, uh, comply with the law. While Congressman Hastings insists he's in favor of salmon abundance, his assertion is that breaching the dams would come at too great a cost to the supply of hydropower and shipping interests. Pat Ford says removing the lower Snake River dams would be an economic benefit to the region. They're fairly marginal dams and they provide some benefit, but not much, and the benefit they do provide is declining. Uh, Only, I think, 19 farms draw irrigation water from these reservoirs in Washington state, and those farms can still draw raw water from the river after the dams are removed. Uh, The navigation component, which is the main reason they were built to make Lewiston, Idaho, an inland seaport, has been in decline for the past decade, and I think it's irreversible decline. The farmers and wheat growers in that country that used to be the main uh, folks who would ship on that waterway are now shipping mostly to Tacoma by road and rail. Uh, and I don't see any change in that. I see the, the navigation side of the equation getting less and less. So that leaves energy. Uh, the dams generate about 1,000 average megawatts. Uh, we've done a lot of work to conclude that that power can be affordably replaced. Indeed, we're in an energy surplus now in the Northwest. It's going to last for a while. So now is the best possible time to act on them. So if you add all that up with the benefits that removing them would bring to the fishing industry, to the boating industry, uh, to tourism and recreation in eastern Washington, uh, we think it's an economic winner. What Save Our Wild Salmon wants to see happen next is a legal, science-based stakeholder planning process, rather than waiting for federal agencies to make yet another attempt to come up with solutions behind closed doors. Pat Ford believes energy users, wheat growers, fishermen, and conservationists could sit down together and talk. Meanwhile, Idaho Public Television's documentary on salmon is expected to air in July. For the KRBX News Experience, I'm Gavin Dahl. And you have been listening to the first ever Radio Boise News Experience broadcast edited by local independent journalist Nathaniel Hoffman. These are your friends and neighbors setting the local news agenda, asking the hard questions, and telling stories that matter. You can be part of this radical news experience. Our next training session is May 26th on the Boise Bench. Stay tuned to KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell Boise, Radio Boise, for an announcement about the location and times, or watch RadioBoise.org backslash news experience. 
We'd like to remind you that it is our spring radiothon for 2012. We have some pretty big goals. We're hoping to get 800 new or renewing supporters and a total of $40,000. Uh, here today and tomorrow are your last days to um, pledge your financial support. And the phone number to do that is 258-2072. That's 258 258- 2072. And if you'd like to keep this kind of reporting, this kind of grassroots, locally uh, grown reporting on the air, your financial support will go a long way to helping make that happen. You can also visit us online at www.radioboise.org. For the news experience, I'm Brian Allred. And I'm Daniel Falcons. Stay tuned for Democracy Now!